0: Hi, good morning uh, to everyone here. Uh, it's uh, such an incredible uh, reality uh, that uh, this is this is where we at. That we're, this is where we're at. Um, I didn't think uh, at the beginning of 2019 uh, that I would be uh, an Angelino uh, as a teaching pastor uh, on the west side here at Collective. But um, and you guys certainly didn't think that you guys would have me. Um, but here we are. Um, It's just been an incredible um, couple of weeks. As my family, we've been kind of getting situated into uh, the west side. I'm just grateful uh, for so many of you, your hospitality, uh, your warm welcome, being able to jump into uh, neighborhood dinners, uh, having some of you over for dinner, uh, grabbing coffee, and just the little things like when we uh, came in, we landed, uh, drove in, and we came home. We walked into uh, our new home. And uh, there was members of, of you uh, that had put together like a little like welcome package for us um, with like little like food just to get us started so we didn't have to worry about going to the grocery store and uh, beach toys for Emma. Um, we have just felt uh, so uh, welcome as we've gotten settled in. But in the midst of that, this has also been a, uh, I don't many of you, you've moved before. It's a strange reality of getting settled into a new place. Uh, maybe you have some of the same furniture you've replaced certain pieces of furniture but you have to get used to new things that uh, the grocery store that used to be uh, just down the street and hang a right now is you know you go to the left and then another left and then a right and if it's sit in traffic and or or uh, new stores that you go to your new coffee shop the one that's like your spot that's new uh, the furniture in your house has been moved around and so you're stubbing your toe you're trying to remember where did we place uh, the, the saran wrap little things like that there's a There's a a dissonance, uh, for lack of a better word, that we feel when we're getting settled into a new place. Um, I'm in the middle of that right now. There's new things left and right. One of them is even um, new games uh, that we play. Um, My daughter, Emma, uh, so she's two and a half, um, she has like one of those little bikes that you like walk on, like run on, and uh, that used to be an outside toy, Uh, now it's an inside toy. I don't know where, when we had that conversation (laughs) where we decided that, Um, and so she goes in circles, uh, around uh, throughout the house, and in and out of rooms and stuff. And so that's not the new game. The new game, something that she'd never started playing until we moved to LA, was where she would go around in circles around the house. And every now and then she would stop. And she'd go, ugh. And she'd mutter under her breath. Oh, sorry, sorry. And then she'd keep going. <laughs> and then she'd stop. Ugh. And then she'd mutter something under her breath. And then she'd keep going. And I'm like, what is she doing? And so I pull Emma, I'm like, what are you playing? And she just stops on her bike. She goes, I'm looking for parking. <laughs> and she goes around and then we listen like, underneath her breath, she's going like, oh, no, it's too small. And then she like goes around and, oh, no, it's a red zone. Like she looked. so we never played this game before and yet uh, kids pay attention. And uh, just sitting in the backseat of the car, her new game is where she looks for parking. Um, man, yeah, it's been a weird thing, uh, getting used to life. Uh, in LA that there's like with it this new um, identity that that I'm now like part of who Ryan is as an Angelino. That's part of who you are in the makeup of of what relationships and education and what you do for a living. Part of your identity, who you are, uh, is informed by where you live. And what that brings out of it then is a way of life. And so as we find ourselves with a new identity and a new way of life, it leads to dissonance. It leads to us stubbing our toes a little bit on furniture getting moved around. And I mean, though this is a strange sensation, this is something that I think a lot of you maybe would, would agree with me. I feel like I've been getting, uh, going through the same experience uh, for uh, the past like 10 years or so, not with getting settled into a city, but getting like settled into like what it means to be a Christian uh, in 2019 is where we are now, but literally the past 10 years, nine years. Growing up within the church, there was a vision uh, of what it means to be a Christian. Or for some of you that maybe you weren't raised in the church, but you became a Christian at some point. The, the underlying theory or motive or how it is that Christians engage with the world and who we are in this world, uh, it, it, it seems like the furniture is not in the right place. It seems like the language I got for what it means to be a Christian doesn't really line up to what I'm going through. And what this means. It's this strange experience. I'm stubbing my toe of what it means to follow Jesus in this digital, global, fast-paced, uh, pluralistic, radically individualized, progressive, secular culture. When, when so much of Christianity that I'm reading about is, is not so much from this you know, digital, but, but kind of agrarian society. Right, Not global, but very, very uh, centered. Not fast-paced, but a slow way of life. And so I can read through the Bible and read through these old stories of Christians throughout history, and they're so encouraging to me. But then at the same time, I'm going, yeah, but you guys didn't have iPhones, right? Like, you guys, you guys your work was the farm behind the house. This is a different season of life, and so there's a dissonance that I feel. The furniture's not in the right place. There's a crossroads I feel like I'm between, between this shared, beautiful, engaging, ancient faith in the way of Jesus and this uh, attractive and wonderful way of life in, in the modern world. And then it seems at times there's, there's ways that they separate and I don't know how to find a way in between. I've been stubbing my toe on this for the past decade or so and I imagine that some of you are in the exact same place. I want these two things, but I feel like I'm stuck at a crossroads. Uh, what we're going to be doing uh, well, before we get into that, uh, here, here's why I think we need to spend this, is because at that crossroads that we, that we face, um, there's no lack of examples for where do we go from here. Before we get into kind of like, you know, to not bury the lead, the third way, uh, we have set be- before us in our timelines and news feeds um, two options before us. On one hand, in the midst of the way of the modern world and our ancient faith, we have the way of Resistance. One that, that carries itself in resisting the underlying modern culture through, I mean, this can be, we're going to move to the suburbs and be a part of a, uh, a mega church with its own subculture, with its own gym and coffee shop and t-shirts and breath mints. And this is just going to be where I'm going to engage and live because I, I'm scared. I don't want me or my kids to be infiltrated by what's going on out there. There's a resistance there. This is seen with Christians that are protesting Starbucks because they don't have the word Christmas on their, you know winter coffee cups. This happens through political enmeshment or just simply Christians resisting the culture by disappearing from it. It's resistance. On one hand, we have a way of resistance set before us. On the other hand, there's, there's just an outright participation in the ways of our city, where the rhythms and the patterns, the way of our city, um, really are just the ways that we go, that the, uh, the distinctive flavor of what it means to be a Christian gets lost. We see this in in quote-unquote deconversion stories, friends or or celebrities or celebrity pastors, if that's even a thing, that they raise up in the faith and at some point they just kind of go, this isn't for me anymore. And as you trace their story, you realize that this isn't so much a walking away from the way of Jesus, it's just a walking into the way of the modern culture that they've been living within. This, both of them, resistance and participation, both come with a political enmeshment of either resisting the culture by advancing our political cause or by entering into a political system and setting aside the Christian faith so that we can engage. This is the two ways before us. And I, as a Christian, I'm just going, I don't really like any of those options. One, because I don't want to live in the suburbs. There's a lot of really good stuff <laughs> that comes out of living within, engaging within the modern culture. I mean, if you guys, like, had, like, m- listen to music? You, we have all of these things that, that, that happen within culture of restaurants and food and, and, and arts. And, like, there's incredible things that happen. I don't want to leave that. And at the same time, there's an, a, a, a Christian faith that I desire to be faithful to and follow that there's a tension there. And so, like I said, what we need, uh, in the same way, that uh, we need natives. Uh, we need locals uh, when we're getting settled into something. Uh, for me, uh, last week, I went out to lunch uh, with, with a couple of you, um, and one of you uh, is, a, is a local and a native, like 17 years, I think, that they've lived here. And uh, we got to the restaurant, and uh, they tell us uh, it's going to be about a 25 to 30 minute wait. And we had Emma with us. We're already past the downtime. I'm like, I don't think I can wait 30 minutes. And I'm like, this is what he's saying, 25, 30 minutes. And he looks at me and goes, yeah, they say that everywhere in LA. And he goes, it's going to be like five minutes. And I was like, okay. And so we just like wait, and then like literally two and a half minutes later, like we have a table for you right now. (laughs) And so uh, having a local and a native really, really helped. And in the same way, as we're working through that tension, I think what we need is a native or a local, someone that they themselves have lived life in a strange, confusing time uh, where they feel the tension between the two, and they found the right way through it. And what we have uh, throughout the New Testament are all of these church leaders who have found that? One of them being uh, First Peter. Well, not First Peter. That's the name of a letter that he wrote. His name's not First Peter. Uh, that'd be weird. Um, First Ryan. Ryan. Like I say, Ryan the uh, First. Uh, Peter, the Apostle Peter, uh, wrote letters to churches to encourage them on this this way of following Jesus and engaging within a strange and confusing culture. And so what we're going to do for the next seven weeks is we're going to sit down with a local and a native uh, in not just L.A., but in this city, in this tension, in this culture, and allow him to walk us through what it looks like to receive uh, our identity and a way of life from Jesus. One that finds this balance, this third way between participation and resistance. What we're going to be calling the way of the exile. And so this is where we'll be for the next seven weeks. If you want to begin turning uh, to First Peter, uh, a lot of you, it sounds like are already there. It'll be behind me. As you turn there, I just want to just bring out uh, that, that, that throughout the New Testament, we have these writings that are meant to help us engage with culture. Ben Witherington uh, is a Bible scholar, uh, which is just a, a nice way of saying he's a Bible nerd. It uh, says that First Peter seems to be the strongest, if not the only New Testament document that systematically addresses the issue of the Christian's way of life within the macro structures of a larger society. Now, obviously, he's a smart guy, but what he's saying here is that throughout the New Testament, we have it'll point and, and note what it means for us to be in culture, but First Peter is just like the, the Magna Carta. It is the, the best resource that we have for this, and so I think it's going to be really helpful for our church. So what I want to do is before we jump into this, let's pray for this the series and let's pray for our time together, and then we'll jump in. Father, we are grateful for uh, this letter, and we are grateful uh, that you have not left us uh, high and dry uh, in the challenges that we face. Um, and that even for me, just in studying this this book, preparing for the next seven weeks, it's been so encouraging to see that my questions and what I'm wrestling through, uh, I am not alone. In this, But this has been something that for 2,000 years, Christians have been wrestling through. And so God, would you speak to us? Would you be with us? Would you use this word uh, to enlighten and drive us in the way of the exile? Like one where we receive hope and identity uh, in the way of resistance and participation. In the name we pray. Amen. Well, why don't we read this? Um, and, then, uh, and then we'll kind of set up where we're going to go today. So the letter opens. Uh, Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, elect exiles according in the sanctification of the Spirit, elect exiles for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. This letter opens, uh, much like an email, most of the letters in the New Testament do, by first introducing us to the author and then uh, to the audience, to the recipient. And what we have right here from the jump is that this letter is written by the Apostle Peter. The Apostle Peter, another way of understanding an apostle, is someone who was both a witness to and a messenger of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Gospel being the word for the good news, how uh, Jesus the Son was sent by God the Father to become the gracious and saving King who now rules forever at the right hand of the Father and does such by sending His Spirit to empower His people to fulfill and live in His kingdom that is both here and on its way. All of this fulfilling God's promises throughout the Bible. Peter is a gospel Apostle, and he's writing this letter to gospel churches that are uh, dispersed throughout what is uh, modern-day Turkey, these cities of Bithynia and Cappadocia, and he's writing to encourage them as uh, not Jewish uh, Christians, but uh, Gentile believers. You see, at the launch of Jesus' ministry... Uh, This began as, uh, large in part, a a movement within Judaism. As Jesus, as Israel, the Jewish Messiah, came to redeem not only his people, but the entire world. And so it launched from Jerusalem out into these cities like modern-day Turkey, where you had people that were following the way of Jesus, this Jewish Messiah, that in fact were not Jewish themselves. And so he writes this letter to encourage them and help them find a sense of who they are in the midst of this. For them, they're asking questions. Okay, Jesus is king. We agree with this message. We agree with this gospel. But now what? For those of us living in a city like Bithynia, what do we do with with this culture? How do we engage with this world? Do we take the pathway of resistance? Whether that's through military might or political uh, fights or through uprising or do we just run or do we just participate and enmesh ourselves and find our allegiance within the city? Where do we go from here? That's great. Jesus is king. Now what? And so Peter's writing this letter to encourage them and help them find the way forward. And so for those of you here today uh, that are Christians, engaging with this passage, members of our church, or you identify as a Christian, and you're you're here with us, 1 Peter, both today and over the next seven weeks, is going to encourage you to poke and prod around your assumptions about what it means to be Jesus, or to be a follower of Jesus, To poke and prod around not only those assumptions but even some of the apathy that you have, where you've just received the direction of resistance or participation within the culture, and to find a better way, one that is far more life-giving, both for yourself and for the city that you find yourself in. Simultaneously, for those of you that are uh, that don't identify as as a Christian, for whatever reason, and you're you're joining us today, uh, one of the things that we love about Collective is that this is a place that is safe for you to question uh, and ask questions and to look into the claims of Christianity. But as you're here today, my hope is that as we're talking through the way uh, of the Christian, that you might hear for yourself uh, from the book itself what it means for the church to be the church, for Christians to be Christians, Uh, to hear from the source itself uh, as opposed to your newsfeed or your timeline about Christians and what it means to be them. And for you to consider, uh, again, not the timeline, whatever out there, Christianity, but what the book itself talks about, the identity that we find within this story. And so why don't we uh, just begin this series today? What we're going to be doing is um, simply looking at uh, these two uh, words uh, that Paul addresses or Peter addresses the church as as elect exiles, we're going to look at these two words, elect exiles, and open those up because in these, the whole big idea of where this letter is going is in these two words. And so we're going to dial in on this, elect exiles. And so why don't we just begin by looking at this, this phrase, exiles, and then we'll come back uh, to the phrase of elect. This word exile is a way of referring to someone whose home is not their home. Someone who's an, an alien, an immigrant, a refugee, a sojourner, a stranger, a foreigner. All of these words encapsulate the experience of the exile. And so why does Peter use this word? I mean, think about this for a minute. The Apostle Paul, he writes his letters and he does the same thing where he's addressing people. In Romans, he talks about to the saints of God, beloved. And, he, you know, and then other letters, he's talking about to the church and to those saved and beloved. And, and Peter's like, To the exiles. He's saying to to the people that are on on the fringe, to the ones that are uh, on the outside, to the rejects is what he opens his letter with. It's not an encouraging word. Why does Peter start his letter this way? He is uh, desiring to shake up your preconceived notions about what it means to be a Christian with strong language. This exile language is meant to shake up one from being simply a resident of the city that you live in or simply a resident of the kingdom of God. But this exile language invites you into a different way, one that is situated in the Israelite experience. see, what's so insane is that what Peter wants to do is he helps us understand our present experience by pointing back to the experience of the Israelite people. He does this not only in using exile language, but even in calling these churches the dispersion in Pontius and da 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 These are largely Gentile churches. This dispersion language was language of talking about the Jewish exile. So either Peter has his lines crossed or he's intentionally seeking to wire something within us as the people of God. What this means is that he's saying if you're trying to figure out the way forward, you need to look backward. That in the story of God's people, there are it's a plethora, it is a mind to, to go in and pull out of experiences and examples of what it means to be the people of God in the world today. Talking about Israel's exile, you see, for the people of God, they they themselves, the Israelite people had gone into uh, exile, gone into uh, living in a home that was not their home, no longer uh, in the, the place of Israel, in the city of Jerusalem, but now in the city of Babylon, living under its rule, in its way, that is where they work, that is where they live, that is where they raise their families. Babylon, a city and way of being and living and existing that in many ways ran counter to the rule and reign of God. And so these exiles found themselves there, wondering where do we go from here? Because it's really nice to live in Babylon. Babylon has really good food. Babylon has really nice clothes. There's money to be made in Babylon. There's praise to be received in the ways of Babylon. But this is our family line, the way of God. And so where do we go from here? Do we resist or do we participate? What we find throughout the Old Testament story, the story of Israel, is, is that for us to understand ourselves, we have to look back to these examples of these people and actually bring their experience and, and overlay it, as it were, over our own experience. Peter himself does this at the end of the letter. In chapter 5, he refers to himself as being in the city of Babylon when he's writing from Rome, a city that had been destroyed generations earlier, and he's saying, oh, I'm in Babylon. See, Babylon became a language and a way of talking about any empire that runs counter to the way of God. And so today, when I use the language of Babylon, I'm not simply talking about Nebuchadnezzar. I'm talking about Assyria. I'm talking about Egypt. I'm talking about Rome. I'm talking about America. I'm talking about L.A. And the first movement for Christians is for us to acknowledge and place ourselves within the way of the exile. To see the city that we live in as a sort of Babylon, most of Christianity goes wrong when we lose the way of the exile. We lose that sort of identity. Every single time you see Christianity going awry and it shows up on your timeline, most of the time it's not a theological issue. Most of the time it's an exile issue. It's an issue of believing, one of resistance or one of absolute participation as opposed to the way that we're called back to and so examining the way of the exile is not something that we have to do because we live in a progressive secular culture now and you know, we're in a post-Christian age and so we've got to go back to the way of the exile. The way of the Christian way is the way of the exile. And we're being invited to reconsider and come back to what that looks like. That's when Christians are most faithful. And so what this way of the exile looks like is we live in Babylon to look backward and to find the way forward is not simply rejection, or excuse me, resistance or participation, but this middle way. Um, and you'll see this on the slide. The, the way of the exile, to summarize where we're going for the next seven weeks and what he's laying out for us here, is that the way of the exile is a life of creative resistance and redemptive participation. Creative resistance and redemptive participation. First, let's look at redemptive participation as we continue to study what it means to be exiles. Uh, Jeremiah 29, you'll see it on the slides behind me. Again, pulling back from the story of Israel and overlaying that within our story. This is what's in Peter's imagination as he's talking about you being elect exiles, as he's thinking about these sorts of things. He says this in Jeremiah 29. You'll see it on the slide behind me. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all of the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, What does he say? Resist or participate. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. The first way of the exile is one marked by a redemptive participation where we uh, build houses. Literally, we call this city home. We plant our roots here. Where we uh, plant gardens, Whether uh, like my wife, she takes this passage literally, and this is why we have to have a garden in the backyard next spring. Or, or simply what it's referring to is work. Our home is in the city. Our vocation, our work, our, we are contributing uh, to this city, whether uh, for, for marriage, this language of family uh, has incredible, profound changes that happen within the new covenant, that this is not just get married and have children, but for both those that are single and married, those that can't have kids and those that are moving through ways of adoption, that regardless, the call of multiply there and do not decrease, takes on a completely different form within the new covenant as, as a movement of inviting people to come and know Jesus for themselves. This idea of being disciple makers. This idea of going to the gospel conversations class next week. You see, we see this display that, that Daniel and friends, you can read about that in, in, in the book of Daniel where we get it, is what he found is these guys came into exile in Babylon and they took on a Babylon education. They wear Babylonian clothes. They took on Babylonian names. Babylonian work. You see, there was a participation within it. They're not running out into the suburbs of Babylon if those even existed. Similarly, in the book of Esther, we have Esther in exile to Assyria, you know, a parallel within Babylon if there ever was one, who comes in and she actually marries the king of Assyria. How's that for participation? (laughs) This is what Peter's going to be pulling out from us, is that the Christian way is not one of retreat, Not one of resistance, not one of running and hiding from the big bad Babylon, but rather a redemptive participation where our vocations, our work, our families, our neighborhoods, our avenues through which we can be present within the city. Later on in the letter in chapter 2, we'll get there in a few weeks, Peter actually writes, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, keep your conduct among others honorable so that they may see your good deeds and glorify God. The emphasis of redemptive participation is not just so that Babylon doesn't come after us, but for the sake of people in Babylon getting to know the God of our kingdom. So the way of the exile is one where we truly show up, one where we are participating in the city, in our culture, in our neighborhoods. We cannot afford to be absent. James Davidson Hunter, in his uh, book, To Change the World, writes, the main reason, man, The main reason why Christians today have not had influence on the world is not that they don't believe enough, or that they try hard enough, or that they don't care enough, or that they don't think Christianly enough, or that they don't have the right worldview. The main reason why Christians today have not had influence in the world is because they have been absent. They just haven't shown up. And so the first movement of the exile is one of redemptive participation, but at the same time, it's not enough to have just that, it's also one of... Of creative resistance. There were times for the exiles when the line had to be drawn in the sand and say, that's something that we're not going to step over. Specifically, when Babylon demanded ultimate allegiance, Daniel and friends displayed this. Esther displayed this when she saw injustice and death and evil at work. And yet, it was not enough to simply resist, but one of creative resistance. See, resistance looks like military might. The way of creative resistance is the way of Martin Luther King Jr., who is able to oppose what's going on from a way of nonviolence. It's a creative way when we didn't think there was a third way. See Daniel and friends—they shown this when Babylon called for them to take on the food and the diet of Babylon. He he said, "Hey, let's have a fast. I'm going to take on a special fast. Instead of eating your food that would go against my way as as an Israelite, my kosher diet. What I'm going to do is I'm going to stick to my my dining plan, and not just that to go resistance, but also hey, and in a few in, a, in 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 a couple weeks, check in on me. If I'm not healthier and better than the rest of the guys, then then I'll go back." And of course, the way of creative resistance brought way for him to be better and for them to actually glorify his God because of it. Esther found the way when she was working to resist the genocide of her people. How did she fight back? Not simply through resistance, she didn't go and grab the sword, she threw a dinner party and invited the king. You see this creative resistance, this way of being present within the city, but yet when we see the city bringing out its evil, bringing out the ways that bring to to addiction and to enslavement within people that lead to anxiety and depression, though it's not enough for us to simply go, that's wrong, but to show up and embody a new way, one that leads people's imaginations to see something they couldn't see before. And we find a way that allows us to do this new way in the midst of still participating, if possible. And I say if possible because at times, like Esther, there may become a point where we say if I die, I die when it comes to stopping genocide. Where uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel's friends, said God's going to deliver us because we do not worship your gods. But even if he doesn't, that's okay because we're not. there's a line in the sand for us. And we'll take what happens as it comes. You see, the way of the exile, this way of creative resistance and redemptive participation is the way that cities, that movements, that things change in ways that are, we look back on them and it's like God showed up and moved in some particular way. Civil rights with Martin Luther King Jr. Churches in Hong Kong right now that are, protect, that are protecting uh, uh, minor, uh, minors in, in the protests. See, they're not protesting, <laughs> but they're also still showing up to the protest and they're protecting the ones that are the most vulnerable in the midst of that. Do you see that? The third way. We look back at people like them and it seems as though there's something special about them as they found the third way, either leading to an assassination or, or just a life lived within the rhythms of culture. Another great example of this is Mr. Rogers. <laughs> we, people look back on him and it's like he's like the second coming of Jesus. There's something angelic and heavenly about Mr. Rogers that makes us long for a greater, better world. And why? It's because he had some rhythm and way of engaging with, the, he wasn't, he was present. Engaging with the problems of our world in a way that, that was not like what anyone else was doing. Another example of the way of the exile, um, it's a lot like kimchi quesadillas. Um, <laughs> stick with me. Um, I'm gonna try, if I start talking about this long enough, we're all just gonna leave and go to lunch. Um, how many of you guys have heard of Roy Choi? The Kogi food trucks, or uh, we have the taqueria right by our house, or A-Frame uh, is here in Culver City. Um, so he's incredible. Um, and so he, he's kind of um, introduced this, this uh, incredible line of, of different foods where he's got things like bulgogi tacos and kimchi quesadillas and carne asada poutine. Um, I had this at uh, A-Frame last Sunday, and um, it was divine. Now, what's happening here is the way of the exile um, in a different context, albeit. But to get your imagination going about what this could look like, here you have uh, someone who is a Korean chef in Los Angeles, the city of tacos, resistance and participation. Yeah, I'll make tacos, but they're not going to be the way that you like tacos, right? <laughs> and, and it's also, it's creative. It's a third way, and it's redemptive in that it is a taste of heaven. And so the way of the exile, this is what God is inviting us into, is one that, that is both resistance and participation, that is creative and redemptive, where, where people can, um, it, it, it's, it's a new way when people didn't expect that there was any way in between the two. But that sometimes involves pushback, what Peter refers to as suffering throughout his letter. Because as we walk that third way, there will be people who will say, that's not really one or the other. As right now, Lorenzo and his wife, Isabel, are thinking when I talk about carne asada poutine, that's not poutine. It's got to have this gravy and this cheese and the fries got to be done this way. That's not poutine. And that's exactly the point. But it involves pushback and suffering as we walk that middle way. But the hope is is that as we do so, regardless of the suffering that we may have, the pushback or the the, the talking or just even the feeling distant from our coworkers and neighbors because of this Jesus guy that we follow, that somehow as people get a look in and they get to know us, that although they might say they don't play by our rules, they don't follow our gods, they don't know and and give full allegiance to our kings, there is something heavenly when I'm around them. There is something different about their way of engaging with the world. And I want to figure out more of that for myself. And so what the rest of 1 Peter is going to be doing for the next seven weeks is he's driving home what this looks like. He's bringing this out in in our relationships with the government, which is going to be like a really fun week. And our relationships with work and and relationships even dealing with those in the church that had um, begun to follow the way of Jesus, but their husband or their wife hadn't. And even the disunity felt within the home. He's gonna deal with people slander and talking and, and what do I do? How do I find this way of pushback? And he's gonna invite us to, to consider that for ourselves. It's gonna be really good. But, but what all of this has to come through, and this is why he spends most of the, this little first two verses here in the greeting, is the way of the exile is not good enough. It must be grounded in, in the identity of an exile. And this is the second word that he pairs with exiles and they're, they're opposites. Exiles are the, re- the, the people that feel like they're rejected by the dominant culture. They feel like they don't belong. They feel like they're on the outside. And he goes, you're elect. You're chosen. And so he has these two things that are polar opposites. He's placing them together. It's like carne asada poutine. They don't go together. And what he's inviting you to start thinking through is an identity that looks differently than simply being an exile, but also one that is elect. He says, though your present experience might be exile in the world, your eternal identity is one that is chosen by God. For Peter, the reason that we walk the way of the exile, the reason that we are exiles is because of the triune community, what God himself and Father, Son, and Spirit has done for us. Look back with me in verse 2 where he, he details how and why we became elect exiles. You'll see this where he says that you are elect exiles according to what? The foreknowledge of God the Father. You're elect exiles in the sanctification of the Spirit. You are elect exiles for obedience to Jesus Christ and elect exiles for sprinkling with his blood. You see, the identity of who you are is not wrapped up in necessarily your exile. The way of the exile is the way that you walk because of your place as chosen by God. And it runs counter to what we receive within Babylon. You see, whereas Babylon wants to make us feel like we are rejected and forgotten or ignored, that we are alone in the world, there are parts of the city that I walk into and at restaurants and stores that I immediately feel like I don't belong, that I'm not cool enough. Right? San Francisco, that's what the whole city is. Every time in San Francisco, I'm like, I'm not cool enough to be here. Um, there are parts of the town that make me feel ignored and alone in the world. There are relationships and people that I know that, that as you go in the world, that, that the rhythms of Babylon make you feel rejected and ignored and left out. Peter opens his letter by saying, actually, you are foreknown by God the Father. This language of known uh, in the Greek that Peter's writing is this language of not just knowing like up here, but knowing that's an intimate knowing. It's used to talk about what mommy and daddy do that leads to a baby. It is an intimate knowing. It is a a love. And what he's getting at and talking about this that that you have been foreloved by God the Father. Before you even were you, that there was a deep, resounding love that God the Father had for you. And that's why you're chosen by him, regardless of what Babylon says. Similarly, Babylon may say, LA, LA may say that you're ordinary, you're simple, unimportant, and boring, that you're just kind of one of the crowd. Peter opens the letter saying, you are sanctified. You are set apart as holy for a purpose of holiness. There is a meaning and purpose through which God has chosen you. Sanctified to embody something far beyond you could ever do within your own power. Regardless of what Babylon says. Similarly, he says, you may hear the beckoning call of Babylon or L.A. or whatever city you're in, calling for your ultimate allegiance and obedience. And he says, you have been chosen not to go after the ways of Babylon that lead to anxiety and burnout and death, but rather obedience to a king named Jesus who brings you life and peace and joy. You see, he's countering the ways of Babylon by introducing us to the work of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And finally, you may hear voices of the city, voices of, of quote-unquote old friends or coworkers or even voices from within yourself that tell you that Babylon, the Babylon just has, has you too much, that its rhythms and ways of sin and selfishness and brokenness, that they have stained you just a bit too much. They've claimed you as a slave to this city, and so you are... Stuck here. Peter opens the letter that in fact you have been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. So how do those even connect? And what is he talking about? Like that is weird. That's I'm like I'm not like like clean freak, but I don't want to be sprinkled with blood. What in the world is he going on here? Peter again as he's been doing and will continue to do, so get used to it, point you back to the story of the Old Testament as a way to understand your own story. Uh, Points back to the the, the Exodus story with this language of sprinkling with blood, where there was uh, the nation, the people of Israel had been enslaved to uh, Egypt, Babylon's little brother, uh, for generations, over 400 years. Enslaved to their patterns. They had been Beat. They had been killed. They had been enslaved. They had been taskmasters that ruled over them for 400 years. For 400 years, their identity had been set as slaves. This is who we are as a people. And yet, Moses, as this foreknown and chosen and set apart person, came both as a person resisting the ways of Egypt, but also as somehow a participant in it, that he was part of the, the royal house. And he came to speak against the ways of Egypt, came to deliver his, God's people. And so through Moses, God delivered the people of it. You've seen, you know, the movie, The Prince of Egypt, right? You've read the book. He brought out from slavery and brought to Mount Sinai. We're on Mount Sinai, God set over these people, his desire for them to no longer know themselves as slaves, but now as a nation of priests to bring blessing to the world. And with this, Moses took this, this sacrificed oxen, and knowing how deep the identity was of slavery in their minds, that they are Egypt's people, he took the blood of this, this oxen, right, and he sprinkles the blood on the people, marking them as the, new, as the covenant people of God. 400 years of grandma and grandpa and you living and being raised in Egypt and thinking that all you are is an Egyptian, all you are is a Babylonian, that you belong to its systems, you belong to its ways, its way of thinking, its way of behaving, its selfishness, its brokenness, its addiction, he's marking them no longer as the people of Egypt but now the people of God. And what Peter picks up here in in talking about this sprinkling of of the blood of Christ is that somehow in in the death of Jesus Christ, through his suffering and death on the cross, that came about through his creative resistance and his redemptive participation, that now there stands a greater sacrifice than Moses' ox, which marks you as God's people. That you too, regardless of whatever you've been through, regardless of whatever you're worried about, as we're going, we're going to be talking about following the way of the exile, you just think, I'm too, I'm too indoctrinated into Babylon. This is just, I'm more comfortable here. This has been my home for too long. That he's saying there's been something decisive in history that has marked you as a new people that by Jesus' resurrection from death and his ascension to rule at the right hand of God, he has not only secured the promise for your own resurrection, that Babylon's death is no longer on you, but also that by the sending of his spirit, the sanctification of the spirit that he talked about, that has been sent into us as now representatives, a nation of priests to our city. And so the way of the exile is one that grows out of our identity as being people of the kingdom of heaven now. So, this is the invitation for every single one of us at the opening of the book. Before we get into next week, where he's going to talk about our living hope that comes from this resurrection of Jesus and what this means for us as the people of God, he starts with the introductory phase and ideas of this idea of being an elect exile, of walking the way of the exile. One that comes from a deep identity of what Jesus has done in walking the way of the exile himself, and simultaneously, inviting each and every one of us to receive what he's done for us as the source for our own identity. For us to be like the Israelites, this new covenant people, that regardless of where we've come from and the enslavement that we've had over us, the addictions and the patterns that we've been stuck to, the rhythms of life that we think have been indicative of where we're always going to go, there's something new at hand. It has to start here. And as Peter ends verse two with, this is how grace and peace is multiplied among us. This reality being present within our lives. This is the grace that speaks larger than anything that we've gone through or been through, and this is a peace that will meet us and be with us and multiply within us as a community as we return to it. And so why don't we shift into a time of uh, just reflection. Um, why don't we pray? And then we-